Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here this, today with my good friend, Dr. Bill Havlicek, who's a professor at the Laguna College of Art and Design and one of the leading experts around the world in the art and the life of Vincent van Gogh, particularly the connection between van Gogh's artwork and his vibrant Christian faith. Uh, so, Bill, I, I think it's fair to say that van Gogh has been a, a, at least a major part, of thought, if not the major part of your life's work. Uh, your book, uh, Van Gogh's Untold Journey, is a, just a terrific book, which I recommend for all of our listeners. Uh, in fact, we'll, uh, we'll post a link for our listeners can order that uh, as a part of our podcast. Um, but how did you come to your interest in Van Gogh? It really began in 1967 when uh, I was a 20-year-old uh, student. That'll give the listeners some idea of my age. I'm 70 now. But um, I was living in... Holland was a junior abroad student, and I was able to see Van Gogh paintings and drawings uh, for the first time in the flesh, having seen them in art history books and all of that. And the difference between seeing uh, a reproduction and seeing a Van Gogh in reality is the difference between night and day. And um, I'd say my interest began there. It was a seed was planted, and then... While I was serving in the military, um, especially working as a psychiatric orderly, which I did during the Vietnam War, I was stationed in an army hospital, medical hospital, I started to see uh, the effects of um, drug use and things like that, some of the effects that Van Gogh himself experienced at different points of his life. And uh, after I left uh, the military, I went on into graduate school, into graduate programs, and uh, the thought of doing a thesis, some sort of research on Van Gogh, uh, started to really grow in me. And after uh, some years of teaching and working as a, a museum curator, I decided to uh, enter into a doctoral program at Claremont Graduate University. And the topic for my uh, dissertation was Van Gogh's uh, letters. And the idea was to look at them as if they were a, a magnifying glass that would reveal a lot of the ethos, the ideas, and the energies of the 19th century. And so the the book came out of that doctoral program. Um, fortunately, I was picked up by a publisher uh, who liked very much the, the published thesis, but in a very sweet, kind way said, look, um, quotes about from Hegel and so on like that are not going to probably appeal to a lot of people. So what we want to really do is rewrite this book. I'll help you with this. We need to um, really develop a book that has a broad appeal so that that it sells well is because we're supporting the Endangered Children's Foundation, which we have with the book. So it began in Holland, uh, living there, and it began through identification, through working on a psychiatric ward, and that sounds rather extreme, but what I saw there was actually a lot of healing. People often think of a psychiatric ward in a very negative way. I saw a lot of, of soldiers coming out of that hospital as really redeemed people in a lot of ways, positive ways. Yeah. And I saw that uh, in Van Gogh's life, too. There were 
periods of amazing lucidity and clarity and, and other times where he was in a very dark place. And he wrote about this in such a beautiful way. His letters then really uh, started to move me, having been moved by the, the painting. That's one thing. But being moved by these confessional, highly uh, well-thought-out uh, letters uh, is, is, is really extraordinary. And I could talk along about his reading habits and uh, the range of interests in those letters, which is extraordinary. There's 902 of them, by the way, and they're usually multi-page. So you take 902, maybe multiply it by three pages, you suddenly realize you've got a tremendous amount of material for a research project. And so when I brought this to my doctoral committee, they said, this is really gritty. There's a lot of material here that you can use that could really make a very interesting thesis and an interesting book. So that's that's how it really happened. Yeah, and having having read Van Gogh's Untold Journey, I can attest to the fact that it is a very interesting book uh, that tells that tells a lot of lot of things that I think are are not well known to people in the general public. So, but one of the things you bring out in the book is Van Gogh's background. I think is a, you know, pretty unknown for the most part, except for people like you who have read all his letters. What was his family like? His upbringing, uh, mm-hmm. and how how did his family shape him, uh, both as a person and as an artist? That's a good, a good question, and it's a complicated question because there was both a positive shaping and a more resistant shaping uh, against uh, a fairly strong father. And a typically strong son, and uh, any um, uh, typical male who's been uh, through that realizes that uh, sons sometimes challenge fathers. I think it's a part of our own uh, maturation, and that did happen. So, very quickly, the family uh, was a Dutch Reformed uh, family. His father was a pastor. He came from uh, not only uh, a father who was a pastor, but he came from a family of welfare uh, ministers. His grandfather was also a, a, a pastor for for the poor. And um, Vincent would often go with uh, both his father and grandfather to deliver packages and do health care and things like that. There also was some medical training because very often while they were on one of these trips, uh, someone would be very sick. So Vincent and his father or grandfather might be pr- providing medical care, which is pretty amazing. And so um, that part of the family was very positive. Vincent wanted to be a pastor like his father and uh, had aspired to go to the University of Amsterdam and study theology, which he did for a while. He actually was, I need to preface that by making this comment, he wanted to get into the program, so he was doing an independent study with a mentor who was teaching him uh, to do uh, the Hebrew and Greek and all of the other kinds of uh, translation work that he needed for that degree. Uh, but by the time he got through with um, some probably close to a year or two of that kind of uh, activity, he wasn't quite sure he wanted to, to get the degree. Uh, so that's a whole other thing. He got into a situation where he was a lay uh, minister to minors uh, and attempted to uh, preach and, and so on. And that wasn't always success, uh, such a successful thing for him. Uh, but anyway, it turns out that those his family were very uh, much um, floral gardeners. They were uh, people who uh, had a great deal of interest. He also had uncles and others who were of art dealers, so there was a rich a mixture of theology, uh, very practical welfare ministry, 
uh, floral gardenery. Uh, he lived in a rural area in Brabant near uh, the, the Belgian border. Uh, he connected a lot with uh, people like uh, peasants and farmers. So he, it, it, when you really try to picture his upbringing, he had uncles who were high-ranking uh, clerics in Amsterdam, uh, well-known pastors with big churches. His father had a small church. He was uh, working with farmers and uh, probably working part-time uh, as a young man in that kind of community. So it was a rich uh, mixture of art, uh, labor, uh, heavy reading. He was a great lover of, of reading. He loved Dickens. Uh, a very bright uh, young man. So it was, a, I would say, very uh, stimulating childhood in many ways now your uh, your book is about is entitled van gogh's untold journey uh i think by by most of which by which you mean his faith journey uh tell us a little bit about van gogh's spiritual life and how do we how do we know about his spiritual life well those are you know that question could probably be asked about anyone really when you think about it only the lord really knows someone's heart uh, that's what we believe. And then you look at their behavior. Uh, his behavior was uh, based on loving his neighbor as, as himself. He believed that that was one of the great uh, callings, one of the great, uh, uh, we would say, moral laws. And he was, all of his life, very much concerned about others, uh, showing care for others, and very generous with his time, uh, often gave money and help to people who were very poor, and this kind of thing. Uh, we know, for instance, he lived in London. We know that he attended, I believe it was Spurgeon. Uh, there were evangelists who were working there with tent evangelism and things like that. Uh, he talks about uh, taking an altar call. He talks about having Jesus in his heart. He talks about uh, when he was a young man after uh, being in London and so on, wanting to devote his life to Christ. Uh, throughout his life, when he was challenged even later, after, um, in a sense, leaving the church, not feeling comfortable with the church structure and all of that, he continued to refer to Jesus as as the, the ultimate, that he was the, the only one uh, who could really change, change or transform a life. And um, if someone would speak disparagingly of Jesus, he would... He would uh, challenge them. Uh, so we know throughout his life he did. And for instance, at the very last months of his uh, of his life, he was making several paintings that are overtly religious. One was the uh, the Good Samaritan. Another one's the Resurrection of Lazarus. He was making uh, paintings that were based on prints or etchings or lithographs by other great artists. But he would transfer them into full color and then paint them in his own interesting way with. Uh, with brilliant color, and by the way, he put his own face on the face of Lazarus, who was being raised from the dead, and he did believe in the resurrection. Becky was a very strong believer in the resurrection. It meant a tremendous amount to him, and in a way, his uh, upbringing as a, as a Dutchman is, plays a role in this, because the Dutch are very tactile people, uh, more than most culture, because they have been exposed to a great deal of flooding, as you can guess, because they're below sea level. They had to reclaim a great deal of their soil. And so things that are solid and substantive mean a great deal to, to the Dutch, and their houses are built of brick and, and all of that kind of stuff. So for Van Gogh, the, 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 the physical resurrection of the 
body uh, was a very big deal, and he wrote about it and talked about it a great deal. And um, I think it's one of the reasons why he liked to paint, because paint allowed him to express a lot of his spiritual yearning into into concrete form. And in its own way, it's like a minor resurrection when you think about it. An artist has an idea, uh, he's inspired deeply, and he begins to shape or craft that uh, that idea into form. And uh, it's something like the creation when you really think about it. And, and more than that, it is a creation, surely. But it is not unlike the incarnation uh, in a minor way, of course. And Van Gogh, I think, was aware of that, the implication of that. Can you give us some principles of how people can look at his art and see some of the deeper meaning that he's drawing? For example, putting his face on Lazarus is pretty clear, kind of hard to miss. Is he always that obvious? Is it sometimes subtle? What principles could we take to understand how religion shapes his art or even the ideas he's portraying in art? Hmm. Big question. Um, I, certainly the subject matter and the kind of uh, preferences that he had in reading uh, were often principle-driven. For instance, one of the uh, the sources that moved him a great deal at the end of his life was the book Les Miserables, and of course the Bible. Van Gogh knew the, the Gospels very, very well and could quote them. And uh, he, he had a very good memory, and he loved the Gospels in particular. And um, so throughout his life he would make reference uh, to these Gospels. For instance, he wrote in a letter sorrowful by but always uh, uh, rejoicing. He loved, he loved Paul. He liked the militant quality of Paul. He liked the principle of, of um, uh, enduring difficulty without uh, complaining so much. And I think his paintings reflect that. They are very beautiful paintings, and they are filled with passion. And probably one of the things that's moving about Van Gogh in a, we'd say, principled way is that instead of creating work that's dark and troubling, it's almost always extraordinarily beautiful. As one person said, in a way, his whole life is a spiritual journey and expressed in beauty of suffering. And he under, did definitely undergo suffering. He suffered from a form of epilepsy, uh, of grand mal seizures. He also had periods where he... Uh, uh, didn't eat properly. He simply wasn't getting a good income and things like that. But the the general theme of his life is redemptive, that he would use his work to move people in a positive way. He wanted his, to leave his work as a legacy for others uh, to, to continue on the journey of life without despairing. And I know you probably are thinking, well, then what about the suicide? And we're going to come to that question because there's there are now... Uh, questions about whether or not it really was a suicide. Does that help you a little bit? Yeah, that does. And you've kind of intrigued me on the next question I have to ask about now, which which is is his suicide, or at least that's what we've commonly been told. Well, anytime I do a lecture on Vago, that's almost always one of the first things that uh, is brought up. There's two ways of answering the question, obviously, he did or he did commit suicide. Um, the traditional view uh, has always been that Van Gogh did take his own life, and it was after uh, recognition that he would probably be suffering the, this form of epilepsy his life. And so um, he may very well have taken his life. In addition to that, his um, brother, 
Law had a child, obviously, and they uh, support Vincent in the way that they had uh, previously to this. So Vincent might have, in a very altruistic way, decided that the best thing was to end his life because he was also uh, experiencing real difficulty uh, drawing. He was losing a lot of his um, eye-hand coordination. Uh, there's a, a lot of different reasons for this. So there, there is a good pros, pos, possibility that he did it, take his own life. However, about a decade ago, uh, a gentleman who was in his late 80s, uh, feeling that his life was coming to an end, wrote a very confessional letter. And uh, he uh, explained that he was one of several boys who were harassing Van Gogh while Van Gogh was in the town of, of Auvergne, where uh, he died. Uh, in fact, if you have seen the film Loving Vincent, you will see this voice uh, uh, hitting him with rocks, putting uh, a snake uh, in his food basket, and just basically making his life really miserable. Uh, and this really did happen. This is what the, the gentleman was confessing in this letter. He also said that they had a pistol and that a very unfortunate event did occur with this pistol, something of this nature. And um, what it suggests is that they accidentally shot him. And uh, what's interesting in uh, Van Gogh's own letters is that uh, there's at least twice in his life where he take, took the blame for someone else. He, he had this very uh, self-sacrificial aspect about his personality. And I remember... When I read the the letter of the, this gentleman who was talking about perhaps accidentally shooting Vincent, or, um, that uh, Vincent was asked by uh, a local policeman after he was shot and was in his bed and, and dying uh, how this had happened. He said, I've been shot. Don't look for anyone else. And that's, that's actually uh, included in the film Lo Loving Vincent, this little uh, vignette that I just told you about. I've shot. In fact, if you see the film, you'll see that there's a discussion. Why would someone say that if they shot themselves or would they say, don't look for someone else? My own theory is that it's very possible he was accidentally shot. My own theory is that uh, knowing that he did have this very um, pragmatic, self-sacrificing part of himself, he would have uh, very easily taken the blame for this because these were young boys. They could have gotten into some serious trouble. And I think he knew he was mortally ill because he had, he had been around people dying. He, he had this welfare background as a, uh, with medical training. He had worked in the Boronage and mining community where people had died. And he'd seen people die. He knew he was, he was dying. And uh, I do, I'm starting to lean more and more in the direction of it being an accidental shooting, if you want to know the truth. I'm glad you mentioned the, the film Loving Vincent. That's, we saw that too. In addition to being just this you know, artistically beautiful film, uh, that is how it was portrayed. Uh, at, least, at least that's a, a, a plausible explanation. Hey, let me, ask, let me ask you about perhaps, perhaps one of his most famous paintings, The Starry Night. Uh, you make the case was a really deeply spiritual painting that reflects the gospel message. Um, what what were some of the influences on Van Gogh for this painting, and how do you see the gospel message coming out in this? Mm. In fact, I wish we had the painting in front of us. It's a little hard to do on audio only, um, but I think a lot of people are familiar with what that painting looks like. Well, just very Briefly, anyone knowing the painting knows that it's primarily blue. The sky is full of 
of brilliant stars and a moon that uh, is a strange combination of a crescent moon and almost a sun, a very curious, brilliant uh, object there. And then below is a, a landscape that looks as though it were almost crocheted as much as painted with a cypress tree rising up. And in the very center of the picture is a, uh, a spire of a little church, very similar to the kind that his father actually uh, ministered in. So when you start looking at it, you also notice that there are clouds that spiral down in the, in, from the sky among the stars, almost as though they're scooping up the earth and bringing it up into the sky. Van Gogh said at the time he painted it that he had always wanted to paint his starry night, and he made a reference to Les Miserables and a bishop uh, in that book. And uh, so as I was doing my research, I uncovered a fact that I had never found before. In fact, uh, I, I, I don't know if another art historian would ever notice this, but that there is a uh, very strong chapter, I think it's chapter two of Les Miserables, in which the, the phrase, the starry night, appears in French. And uh, it is uh, a night uh, meditation by a bishop who would go out into his garden at night and look at the night sky and pray. And so the description of what the bishop sees is very similar to the starry night that Van Gogh painted. And Van Gogh was reading Les Miserables at the time he painted it, as I said. And he had read it before, but at the end of his life, having had epilepsy and uh, his health being undermined, I think he was moved by it all the more. And so he saw the starry night as uh, deeply religious because he said himself, he said, I have a terrible need for religion. This is a direct quote. I have a terrible need for religion, and I don't feel comfortable going to churches in the old days, so I go out and I paint the night sky. And in a sense, I meditate on the beauty of it. I feel very much close to God. And uh, the meditation in Les Miserables is absolutely beautiful because it talks about uh, the bishop lifting up his his heart and soul to God, and and um, as though there was a reassurance that he felt in the presence of that spectacular beauty that God existed, that there was a creator. And I think Van Gogh, at the end of his life, also said he pictured death as taking a train to a star. So we know that at the time that he painted this, he was thinking about the possibility of dying. And he also wrote to a, a friend when he, after he had finished the picture uh, that uh, the inspiration of for it had a lot to do with the nature of Jesus, who redeemed all mankind. And he said a very beautiful thing. He said, Christ alone is the greatest artist, because instead of working with clay or brushes and paint, he transforms men into immortals, and in a sense, resurrects them and makes them into eternal uh, existence. He said, no painter can, can be better than, than our Lord, the greatest creator and artist ever was. And so those were the kinds of things that he was thinking about and writing about uh, when he was painting this. So we have his own comments about the picture, which is very unusual. Most time uh, we speculate about the meaning of a work of art. We don't have an artist's own words for it, but in Van Gogh's case, we do. So we have very good reason to uh, ascribe the kinds of meanings to it that Van Gogh himself gave it. Since the sky is so alive and vibrant in that painting, and yet the church is right in the middle in the valley, and it's dark, was he criticizing the church? Because some have said in his painting, the church, which seems to be a painting of the church without doors, that he was mm -hmm. critical of the church itself, but still saw God in nature. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, I'd say that's it, that's quite accurate. He had been fired by uh, a, a synod of uh, clerics after he had worked for about two years as a lay uh, missionary in the Bornage region, and they fired him because they didn't feel that he dressed properly and uh, conducted himself as a well-dressed minister should with a top hat and frock coat. After seeing uh, uh, fire damp explosions and people severely injured, uh, Van Gogh uh, started to wear the clothes of a miner. He said these people can't relate to big shots walking around with canes and uh, fancy clothes. And he said, I do not believe that the Lord would have uh, worn those kinds of clothes. His clothing was very much that of a common person. And Van Gogh was very smart about this kind of stuff. And the people who fired him um, showed really a lack of, uh, I would say, even understanding of the miners themselves. After he was fired, the miners really complained. They said uh, Pastor Vincent was the only pastor we really wanted, who really seemed to care and wanted to share in our lives. And we are really we are sorry that he was gone, and we missed him. And Van Gogh held it against the clergy. Uh, when he came back home, his own father uh, was a kind of, in a way, he, his father didn't know how to deal with his son uh, losing his job, we'll put it this way, and didn't defend him or explain the circumstances to his own parish. So here's his son uh, coming back from the mines, uh, not in the best health, and uh, feeling as though his father had, in a way, abandoned him, along with the clergy. And from that point on, he did not attend church. But I don't think he ever lost his faith. And let's face it, there are many people, maybe some even listening uh, to this podcast, who may be in the same situation. Bill, one last question, and then we'll uh, we'll conclude. Um, you know, you've you've long been a champion of the place of the arts and a vibrant Christian faith. Um, what would you like to say to uh, both both the church corporately and then to individual believers about the, the place of the arts in a in in someone's Christian life? Well, when we read the book Genesis, the first thing we recognize is that God is a creator. He created all things, right? And uh, one of the mandates we now call either the cultural trend mandate or the creation mandate, uh, the Lord telling us as Adam and, and so on to, to take care of the garden, and then after that to, to, to uh, have lordship over creation, uh, animals, and so on. And so, uh, also to be fruitful and multiply, right? And so, in fruitful, being fruitful and multiplying means that people are going to eventually have a lot of people, and they're going to have to live somewhere. And so, cities come naturally into the game, uh, New Jerusalem and Old Jerusalem. And so, there are places that people must live. And if people are living together, they will have a vibrant cultural life. That's going to be a part of the cultural and creation mandate, that we are to do culture together that we create things of beauty together, that we take care of the garden, and we, we enjoy the beauty of nature, but we also have creative uh, inclinations. And as one of the great Gisson uh, said, the arts seem to grow naturally out of the creation emphasis in, in beauty in nature. Uh, we, we have a desire to create beauty, and it's an extension of what the Lord already began with so much beauty. I mean, you look out the window and see all of the, the trees and, and flowers and birds and the variety and richness and lushness of nature is just staggering, and the, the tropical fish are so beautifully colored, and we just go on and on and on with the amazing color range of birds and things like that. And so it's not... Uh, Jusson explains it this way, that for the Christian, 
it is natural to love creation because God created it, and it is also natural to want to create either children, we create one way or the other. And for the artist and people who are involved in the arts, it's a way of, of continuing on the creation of, of creation itself. And it's a very interesting way of thinking about it. We continue to uh, add in a certain way to the multiplicity uh, of beauty that is already there. And people like C.S. Lewis have talked about this. Tolkien has talked about it, talked about the fact that uh, in the book of Revelation, there's some very tantalizing references to uh, some of the, the great kings of the earth bringing uh, treasure into heaven. And uh, Tolkien liked to speculate that some of the most beautiful things that were created by people in a loving, creative thing, that the Lord is going to cherish those things and want to have them in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, just as a parent would want drawings and, uh, and so on of their children. And I find that very plausible. And uh, I can imagine the Sistine Chapel being transported to, to heaven. And some of the greatest and beautiful things ever created by Rembrandt and others uh, in heaven. Uh, believe me, heaven's going to be an amazing place uh, if uh, uh, all of our uh, theologians and, and writers and thinkers are right. Now that, and, make, um, that makes a lot of sense. Why, you know, why, why wouldn't we have beautiful art in heaven? That makes, that makes perfect sense. We so appreciate, Sean and I so appreciate your being a champion of the arts, uh, but well, also, you. but also your your work on Van Gogh and his spirituality uh, and how it's reflected in his art and in his life. It is, it it's it's not as it's, the journey is not as un, untold as it used to be before your book. So we're very grateful for that. So thanks so much for being with us on this. This is incredibly insightful stuff. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this little this trip into the world of the arts, uh, particularly the life of Vincent Van Gogh. Thank you, guys. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Bill Havlicek, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.